Daniel chapter 9. I'm going to read, I want to read the first part of Daniel 9 in its entirety because it is Daniel's prayer. And that's all we're going to deal with this morning. Lord willing, we'll get into the 70 weeks next week, but the prayer is so deep and so rich and so beautiful. We, we need to understand this prayer from Daniel. So, Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord to make request by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned. And committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled. Even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants the prophets. Who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes. To our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us, shame of face. As it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which, which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against Him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster came, has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. O Lord. According to all your righteousness, I pray that your anger 
and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem. Your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God. Oh, my God, incline your ear to hear, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. What a prayer! What a prayer! A prayer from the heart of Daniel. I think you know what I mean when I talk say something, you know, like, like a public face and a private face. You know, some people have a public persona, public face, and they're different and private. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes, you know, we see people that we think are one way in public and we get to know them and we go, wow, they're really not like that at all. I've known people that I had a public, that had the public image of them and I didn't think very much of them. And then I got to know them and I was like, man, they're great. Just the opposite is true too, right? So I think you get the picture, public face, private face. You remember Bill Clinton? Now how can you forget him, right? In the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton was defended this way. Character does not matter. For the first Time in the history of our nation, one of our leaders, in fact, not just one of our leaders, our president, and those who were defending him were saying publicly character does not matter. It doesn't matter what he does in his private life. All that matters is that he what? He get the job done. As long as we have a good economy. As long as we're happy and things are going great and we, we, we don't care what he does in his private life. For the first time in the history of our country, that was being said about a president. Now, the short-sightedness of Bill Clinton and his defenders was this. What they didn't realize in their political calculations that they could get him off that way, which they did, but what they, their short-sightedness was that in their political defense and using character doesn't matter, they didn't realize that they created a whole cultural shift in this country. To where now, that's the norm. Character doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Character doesn't matter. It just matters what you, you know, whether you can get done. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter about your private life. It just... 
And we see it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, right? We have to have faith in the character of our leaders. We have to have faith in the character of our leaders. Because we're not with them all the time, are we? And so, when one stands and gives a public face of being someone of character, we have to take it by faith that they are. Now, I know today, the media and the information age, it's way, you know, a hundred years ago, it was a different story. I mean, you know, they could stand and say, and probably nobody would ever know, and the press, you know. But now, in our digital world, yeah, it's true. Things can, you know... There's more of an invasion of a person's privacy now than ever before and so forth. I get that. But they still can hide it. And they still do. We have to have faith in the character of our leaders because we're not with them all the time. Ethics. Morality. You see, this is the, this is the reality of it. A person's worldview, the way you see the world, shapes your character. It shapes your ethics. It shapes your morality. It's the, the way you see the world shapes what you do and the reason why you do what you do. person who's an atheist, person who has a humanistic worldview, a person from an evolutionary worldview and looks at the world in those terms, their ethics, their morality is going to be completely different. Completely different than say a believer who sees the world through a Christian worldview. You don't believe me? Just look at some of the hot issues right now. Just take the abortion issue. As a Christian with a Christian worldview, I see the issue in a totally different way than say someone from a totally secular worldview and they see it and they go, what's the big deal? As a believer, I look at it and say it's a big deal because that's a life God created in His image. So a world person's worldview shapes their character, their morality, their ethics. It always has, it always will. And I talk to kids every day about this kind of thing. It's the way you see the world. It's the reason why you're deciding whether or not you're going to involve yourself in all sorts of things, in moral things. Whether or not you're going to say it's okay and it's not okay. It's your worldview that's dictating that. It's true. We have to have faith in our leaders. And we have to understand that our worldview is shaping our morality, our ethics, and our character. It's shaping our character. When you say Christian, when you say, I am a believer, there should be something behind that. There should be something behind that in the way you think and the way you live. Because that worldview is going to shape who you are as a person. It's going to. It's going to. There's certain, certain moral codes, certain ethical code, and it's to be lived out publicly. You see, my faith is not just something that's a private matter. 
That's another lie that's been invented and that's been that's that's kind of the norm now is oh it could be a Christian, but it's private. My faith is not private. My faith is public. I will live it out publicly. I want you to keep your finger here in, in Daniel nine. I want you to go to Matthew just a second. I want you, because I want to see I want you to see what Jesus said because in one sense this this could be sort of like hypocrisy. We all know what a hypocrite is, but in another sense, it's it's really it's not necessarily hypocrisy. This is what Jesus said about the scribes and the Pharisees, and boy, he blasted them in, in Matthew chapter twenty-three. Matthew chapter twenty-three, he's calling them on the carpet, just just woe to them, woe after woe after woe, and then you get to verse twenty-three. And he says, woe to you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay the tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup, and the dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men." But inside, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, I don't want to be in that group. I don't want to be in that group. I don't want to be in the group that Paul, when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, they have a form of godliness. But they deny its power. I don't want to be in the group when Paul's writing to Titus, and he's talking to Titus and he tells them, you know, he tells Titus that there is a group of people along the same lines of having a form of godliness. There is a group of people who have this outward show, but there is no inward reality. There is no inward reality. This outward show of Christian faith, but a mind and heart that is not Christian at all. I don't want to live my life that way. I don't think you do either. And if that's me, I want to know it. And I'm going to tell you one way we can see it, and we can understand it, and we can know it, because this was not so about Daniel. This was not Daniel. Daniel was not a whitewashed tomb that inside was full of dead men's bones. In fact, as we probe into this prayer, because all of a sudden, and all of this apocalyptic language and visions and dreams of the second part of this book, after all those stories in which we get glimpses into his character, and in the midst of all of this apocalyptic Language and dreams and visions and all of this. All of a sudden, the pause buttons hit and we get a glimpse into the very heart and character and nature of Daniel. That's what this prayer reveals. 
This prayer reveals something about the very nature and character of Daniel. And there's two stones to this foundation in this prayer. One is confession. We see him in honest, broken, humble confession. And then there's this plea. There's this heartfelt plea to God for mercy. This heartfelt plea to God for mercy. Now everybody wants to run and get to verse 20. And they want to run and get to the 70 weeks. We'll get there, Lord willing. But we, we won't really understand the 70 weeks or any of the other apocalyptic dreams and visions without really understanding something about the nature and character of Daniel. And this prayer shows it. This prayer shows it. This prayer, one writer said, is the theological center of the whole book of Daniel. And I think he's right. Well, let's look at it. Let's start to look at this prayer. First, there's this great confession. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus. We've already dealt with Darius. We've been introduced to him in five, chapter 5, verse 31. Chapter 6, verse 1. We've already dealt with you know, who he was in the time period. Um, he's identified here of the lineage of the Medes. He was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, this is about 539 B.C., Daniel's an older man. Daniel says, I, Daniel, understood by the books, the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years of desolations of Jerusalem. Now, this is what prompts him to pray. He is, this is troubled times. Daniel's, we've already seen what he's been through. So, There's been turmoil and Daniel is aware there's a restoration coming. And evidently Daniel goes to the word of God, what he would have had at the time. And Jeremiah specified here. One thing I want you to notice too is that he calls Jeremiah the word of God. You see that? The word of the Lord. Jeremiah just wasn't a history book. Jeremiah was God's word. And here is a prophet, Daniel, who is prompted by studying God's Word and particularly seeing in Jeremiah some promises that were there. And he's prompted, he's moved in his heart to pray. I think it's important. Many times have we been moved by the Word of God to pray. How many times have our prayers just been short and glib and thank you for today and how you doing, have a nice day, bless me and bless mine. This is why on Wednesday nights we use the Word of God in our prayer time. We use the Word of God in our prayer time because it's from this that Daniel, he's, he's in the Word, he's in some of these prophets, Isaiah probably, Ezekiel probably. Reading these books. Notice books is plural here. But he singles out Jeremiah. I read in Jeremiah something that prompted me to cry out to God. It was probably this. Keep your finger here. Turn back to Jeremiah. It may have been this section here. Although we're not told chapter and verse. 
But it may have very well, although the 70 weeks is identified, and this is where the 70 weeks we see in Jeremiah. If you have been reading and following through McShane's reading, you've been reading in Jeremiah. And man, Jeremiah has just been laying the people low. God has been saying to Israel, you've sinned and I'm, I've done with you. And he's just laid them low. But all throughout Jeremiah, there are these glimpses and hope of restoration. One such little glimpse and hope of restoration is found in chapter 16. Verse 14, therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, and it shall be, it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their land, which I gave to their fathers. These little glimpses of hope of restoration, but the 70 weeks specifically in Jeremiah chapter 25. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 11. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Verse 12. Then it will come to pass when the 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. After the 70 years, Jeremiah says, that God deals with His people because of their sin and their breaking of the covenant, and the Babylonians came. We've dealt with some of this history already. They come, and the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem Jeremiah said it was a 70 year period. Now, when we get to the 70 weeks, we'll go back into the 70 years a little bit because more needs to be said about that. The 70 year period appears in other places. But what prompted Daniel to pray was reading in Jeremiah about the judgment of God, but then getting a glimpse of the mercy of God. It's only going to be 70 years. Daniel would have known that he's at the end of it. He's probably in year 67, 68. He would have known it's about to end. And it's almost as if Daniel prays from his heart to God. How long? Oh God, please. Please bring this about. But he does something first that's amazing. So it's the Word of God that's prompting him to pray. And it's not only just the Word of God, but it's seeing the blessings. It's seeing the promises of God. And he understands and knows. This is another thing that's amazing. He understands and knows this has been decreed by God. The 70 years are going to happen, whether he prays or not. And yet he prays. And he prays as if it all depends on him. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, just because he decreed it doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. This is what's amazing. I've read, and now, verse 3, I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. This was an outward show of his heart, the humility of his heart. Daniel humbled himself before God. 
This was not some pomp prayer. This was not some prayer in which he's showing off. This is a prayer from his heart. And he humbles himself before God and he prays. In verse 4 he says, And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him. Do you notice how he starts? I mean, this is exactly how Jesus taught us. He said, this is how you should pray. The first thing you should pray in the first area, the first category that you should pray about is the greatness of God. You remember in the, in the, in, in the model prayer that he gives us? What's the first thing? Hallowed be thy name. This is exactly what Daniel's doing. God, you were great. You were wonderful. You were magnificent. You were the greatest. Great and awesome who keeps his covenant. We don't keep covenant. You keep covenant. You are faithful. You are the promise keeper. We are the promise breakers. And mercy to those who love him and to those who keep his commandments. Now notice what starts in verse 5. You see the plural pronoun? We. We have sinned. What sin have we seen from Daniel in this book? We haven't seen one, have we? Yet Daniel so identifies with the people, he so identifies with Israel at this point, that he's crying out and he sees it. We have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. You sent prophets. We didn't listen to them. Jesus says later to the scribes and the Pharisees, it was your fathers. You fathers killed the prophets. They didn't listen to them. They didn't hear anything. They killed the prophets. They didn't want anything to do with them. But notice how Daniel in this is saying we We, we, Daniel could have very easily said this. You know what, God? Those dirty people. You know what? They have sinned. I've been, I've, I've, I've done what, I've done what you wanted. They sinned. There's a little bit of this of Moses. In fact, go all the way back to the fall. Go back to the garden. That woman you gave me. That woman you gave me. And then the woman. That serpent. I mean it's a natural thing in our fallen state to pass the buck, isn't it? It's a natural thing in our fallen state to look and say, I'm pretty good. It's my neighbor who's got the problem. If anybody could have done it, Daniel could have done it. And yet Daniel, I think it shows something of his character. It shows something of his understanding of the Word of God and his understanding of the world and that he understands what Paul would say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I don't think he understood it fully, but he understood I'm associated with these people. He didn't pass the buck. He didn't say it was their problem. He didn't say they're the ones that sinned. He didn't do any of that. He's identifying with them here. I think it's important. I think it's key. We have sinned. 
We have had this spiritual deafness about us in which we have not listened to your word. We have not listened to your prophets. And this is why we're in the mess we're in. When we get into the 70 weeks, we'll look at the covenant that was made. We'll go in specifically Deuteronomy 28 and look at that covenant language in which God said, If you keep my law, you will be blessed. If you do not keep my law, this is what's going to happen. They're going to come in and they're going to take over and I, I am going to punish you. They broke the covenant. That's what God was doing with the Babylonians. And Daniel saying, we've sinned. We didn't hear. We were spiritually deaf to your word. Who spoke your name to our kings and princes, to our fathers and to the people of the land. Verse 7, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face. Notice us. Us belongs shame of face as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far, all the countries where you've scattered them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. We have sinned against you, God. We have sinned against you. In verse 8, this great plea, O Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To us belongs the shame of face. To our kings, our princes, our fathers. Because again, here it is again, we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against Him, we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law. It's a reference to Deuteronomy 28 probably, where Moses was very clear. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, against our judges, who judged us by bringing upon us this great disaster for under the whole heaven, such as never has been seen what has been done to Jerusalem. God was true to his word. God spoke. God said, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And therefore, God is righteous. He has integrity, and when he says something, it's going to happen. Just as sure as this happened with the Babylonian captivity, just as sure as God said that would happen, just as sure as God saying it's only 70 years. So there's hope. So there's hope here. Now, this is not just a general statement of, I know I'm not perfect. We do that sometimes. Yeah, I know I'm not perfect. But somewhere tucked away in our heart, we think I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Right? I mean, if pressed, yeah, I know. Even, even a most hardcore atheist, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I'm sort of reminded a little bit of this of the rich young ruler that Jesus dealt with when this rich young ruler comes to him and says, you know, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he's sort of smug and arrogant. And Jesus then lays out the second table of the law, the, the six commandments, those last six commandments that deal with our relationship with each other. And, you know, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't lie, and those things. And he lays that out, and this guy says, ah, I'm pretty good, I've done that. I've done that. I know people that haven't kept that. And in a sense, if we're not careful, we catch ourselves saying the same thing. You know what? I didn't murder anybody today. Although the day's not over. 
Let's just take yesterday. I didn't murder anybody yesterday. I didn't commit adultery against my wife yesterday. I didn't do that. I didn't steal. I was taking my son around to look at trucks, and yeah, I was envious that, you know, because I'd like a truck, but I didn't covet him. I didn't covet him to the point to where I knocked him out and robbed him of his money and went and got myself a truck. But here's the thing, when Jesus says to this rich young ruler, when he's dealing with him on that level and he's smug and arrogant and thinking, ah, I'm pretty good. Oh, now I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect, but I haven't done these things. And Jesus says, okay, go sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And you remember what he did? He walked away sad. You know what Jesus exposed in your arrogance, you think you haven't done this. But what you don't realize is that your heart is rotten because you've broken the first four commandments. Because you're holding your riches above God. And what Jesus is exposing is the same thing that He exposes when He talks in the language of, you say you haven't murdered? Yeah, have you hated somebody? you got hatred in your heart? Guess what? You've committed murder. Say, I haven't committed adultery? No, I haven't committed adultery. You got lust in your heart? You've committed... See, the point is that it's of the heart. It's not just external things we do. Daniel, in a sense, understands this. We have sinned against you. Not just... Not done a few sacrifices here or there. Didn't keep a couple of Sabbaths here or there. But our heart is not right. And that's why we didn't listen to your prophets. That's why we didn't listen to your word. That's why we turned away from what we saw when we saw in your glory. And we turned away from it. And that's why disaster has come upon us. Daniel's clear. This is, you are right in doing this. This is why this disaster has come upon us. Again, verse 15, And now, Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, made yourself a name as, is, as it is this day. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. But then verse 16, here comes this shift. Here comes this plea for mercy. Because God is merciful. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, God, for your own glory, do this. This is Moses telling God, if you let these people die out here, then you know what the Egyptians are going to say about you? They're going to say you're a weak God and you can't save your people. That's the sense in which Daniel's saying it's for your glory, not for us. It's for your namesake. It's for your glory. Your reputation's at stake here. You've made promises here. So it's for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. And oh my God, incline your ear and hear and open our eyes, 
and see desolations in the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you. We don't come to you. We don't pray to you because, and here's an incredible admission of humility here. We're not coming to you because of our righteous deeds. We're not coming because we deserve it. We're coming as sinful beggars begging for mercy. We're not that arrogant, prideful, Oh God, hear my prayer. I thank you that I'm not like these poor wretched sinners. We are that poor beggar who cries for mercy. You see it in this prayer? You get a glimpse of the heart and character of Daniel. I mean, if anybody could have said, hey, I'm pretty good. Daniel could have said, I'm pretty good. I mean, after all, he survived the lion's den, didn't he? But it's not because of our righteousness. And here's the basis of it all, but it's because of your great mercies. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen. Act. Don't delay. For your own sake, for for your own sake, my God, for for your city, for your people are called by your name. Oh Lord, act here. Have mercy on us. We don't deserve it. You are a merciful God. Here in Daniel is a mind and a heart that has been shaped, informed, inflamed to prayer by the word of God. And I have to believe that those are some of the most precious prayers to God. And I have to believe that if we want to see His blessing, if we want to see it in our lives, then we had better get busy about having minds and hearts that are informed, inflamed, and bursting with the Word of God as we pray to Him. Maybe that's why your prayer life is so dull. Maybe that's why it's become so dry. Infuse it with the Word of God and see what happens. You want a good place to start? Take the Psalms. Take the Psalms. This promise... And again, Lord willing, we get to the 70 weeks, we see more, a little more of this and get into the restoration a little more. But there's a promise of restoration. We've sinned, you've promised restoration. Oh God, in your mercy, bring it about. This promised restoration. What we need, and the language of restoration, and what we need today, is the language of revival. Maybe not so much revival. Maybe awakening is a better term. What we need is an awakening. Why? Because we have sinned. And we have not listened to your word. Now, Before you start blaming LGBTQ, 
And before you start blaming Islamic terrorists, and before you start blaming liberal, socialist, secularist, whatever, let me remind you what Daniel said in his prayer of confession when he said, We have sinned. He didn't blame it on the Greeks. He didn't blame it on the Persians. He didn't blame it on the Babylonians. We're reminded of this when we're told that judgment begins in the house of God. Who's the problem here? Let me be honest. Who's the problem? What's the number one problem in my life? It's not my wife. It's not my children. Or your husband. It's not your job. It's not your neighbors. The number one problem in your life is your sin. And my sin. And who's to blame? Who's to blame? I am. I am. I love this country with all my heart. I think it's the greatest country this world has ever seen. I think what our founding fathers did was something that was incredible. And it's being torn apart. It's being torn apart. And it breaks my heart. But who's to blame? We have been rocked to sleep as believers in the cradle of all the ease and comforts of the American dream. And we have sinned. And until we humbly confess our sin, God is just and God is right if He brings this thing down. We have to stop pointing the finger outside. If we want to see an awakening and revival, the finger gets turned inside. This is Paul in Romans 7. In Romans 7, he's going through and he's talking about his life. And I believe he's talking about his life as a believer and the struggle of sin and what he goes through and what I ought to do, I don't do, and what I want to do, I can't do, and all this, and it's sin, and it's this. And he gets to the end of that section and he says, Oh, who's going to release me? Who's going to save me? Oh, wretched man that I am. This is Daniel. Oh, wretched people that we are. Who's going to save us? And Paul says, I thank God it's Christ Jesus That's Daniel. Who's going to save us? It's the mercy of God that's going to save us. It's God who's going to save us. There needs to be a humble confession and repentance of sin and a turning from sin. 
Because that's in here too. Not only was He praying that they would hear, but they would hear and they would obey. It can't happen, and it will not happen, for you personally, for us, as long as you are still in that sort of public-private face kind of. And publicly, you look, come to church, come to Sunday school, do the right things, say the right things. But privately, your heart is rotten. I've been there. I did that. I played that game. And you know what ate me alive? My conscience. My conscience ate me alive. Until I finally said, we've sinned, I've sinned. And I humbly came to Christ. I humbly came to Him. Maybe that's where it needs to start with you. If so, come to Him. You know what you're going to find? You're going to find a merciful Savior in Christ. You're going to find a Savior who loves you. You're going to find a Savior who's full of mercy and compassion. And you're going to come to Him with all your sin. And there it is. And you're going to see Him. And He's going to, he's going to love you. And you're going to think, I've never known anything like this. And you're right. Because there is nothing like the mercy and grace of God. There He is. Died on a cross, buried, raised the third day, and there He is. And He's saying to you, come. Come. Let's pray.